We've been working through a series over the past few weeks where we've been looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, Long Lost Family is a really appropriate uh, name for this series. In a sense, Joseph has lost his family for some 13 or so years. And uh, we see the unfolding narrative uh, of the way that that whole story is, is part of the Bible. And that's really what we want to remind ourselves Uh, And the song that we've just sung is a really appropriate song uh, as we come to this. We're coming to a point where the brothers um, come before a throne. It's the second uh, highest throne in the land. It's the throne of Joseph, the vizier of Egypt. And yet, before we begin, and as we prepare in, in prayer to look at this pretty long section... Let's just remind ourselves that the greatest throne and the power behind even the throne of Egypt is the greater throne of God in heaven, which is now the present place of Jesus, who is the King of heaven. So let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word this afternoon. We thank you that the content is, in one sense, from thousands of years ago, and yet it speaks to us today, because we believe that it is the living Word of God which communicates to God's people for all time until Jesus returns, and then we will see the Word face to face. And so prepare us, we pray, to hear your Word by the power of your Holy Spirit who meets with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you manage to uh, get information from us, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, email this uh, past week, we've given you a bit of a heads up that we're covering, covering a big section. We've been going chapter on chapter on chapter up to now, but in a sense, these next three chapters, which we're going to re- look at this afternoon, uh, are one story. They're one key part of the story. In a sense, they are almost the culmination. Next week is the finale, uh, but these three uh, chapters are incredibly detailed, whereas the other chapters have covered significant periods of time. These three chapters cover a relatively compressed period of time. And so what we see from that, I guess, is that the narrator wants us to see how important this relatively short period of time is. In relation to everything else that's gone on, in relation to the years that it's taken to build up to this point, a shortish period of time is covered in a a large section of text. Uh, Very often the Bible does that. It, It focuses our minds in narrative form on a big section of text covering a relatively small section of time because it's saying to us, this is the key. Uh, and the integration, really, uh, of this story is, is critical. We broke the reading up because it was long, uh, but we've not, written, we've not worked through three chapters. Uh, so I'm going to give you, if you like, the, the bullet story uh, of where we've got to. I, um, I know it's probably a little bit difficult to read on the screen, but essentially it's worked like this. Joseph has reached this elevated position of second ruler in the greatest empire in the world at that time. 
the second ruler, the vizier of Egypt, he has enacted a genius plan. Not only has he conceived that plan, but he has been able to enact it over seven years, that during seven years of prosperous harvests, Egypt has been able to gather in food, they've collected that food, and now famine has struck, just as God said it would be. Now, one of the things that we saw last week is that the wisdom of Joseph is actually the wisdom of God. In the middle of Egypt, in the middle of what is, for all human perspective, an incredibly non-God of the Bible context, where the God of the Bible is not recognized, where the God of the Bible is not worshipped, where Joseph is the lone voice of the God of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, what we see is that it is the wisdom of the God of the Bible which has become the Savior for Egypt. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? That's what the narrator is driving our minds to do. Who is the genius behind this? One of the things that Joseph has said again and again is, I can't interpret dreams. It's God who interprets dreams, so tell me your dreams. He's saying, there's where the power is. There's where the vision is, there's where the authority is, and there is the one who holds the future in his hands. You can't interpret 14 years worth of time in dreams if you can't then also hold the outcome of those 14 years, can you? You might give an interpretation, but the only way that that interpretation at time zero is correct is if you can enact the outcome for the next 14 years. And it is God who does that in Egypt, is what we see worked out. So the sons who are still in Canaan and are suffering desperate famine, the brothers of Joseph, uh, Jacob, Israel, used two names in, uh, in backwards and forwards between those two names in the Old Testament, Jacob sends ten of his sons into Egypt because he's heard that there is food. They come before Joseph. Just for a moment, imagine that moment. Joseph, on that day, got up, washed, shaved, cologned, which he would have done in Egypt. It's really American, that, wasn't it? Cologned. He put on nice smelling stuff, which is what he would have done. He turned up on his day, and there in front of him are his ten brothers. It must have been a moment of incredible power and emotion. These ten men, who are now bowing their head before him, starving, bedraggled, desperate. He recognizes them, they don't recognize him. He immediately enacts another plan. These next three chapters are Joseph's next plan. You're spies. No, no, we're not spies. We're the son, all the sons of one man. What, what does that mean? Do you re- maybe you read that. Why is he saying that? We're all the sons of one man. Well, if you were spying, you wouldn't risk all of your sons in one venture. That's the idea behind that. This is honest. This is genuine. We're desperately in need. The famine is terrible in Canaan. And so, 
Joseph accuses them, accuses them, accuses them, then asks them, peppers them with questions. What about your father? What about your family? Well, he's still alive. We've got a younger brother. I, I, I wonder how Joseph kept his emotions under control when he heard that Jacob was still alive. And then when he heard of Benjamin, what must that have meant to him? When he understands that the father who he loved and the father who loved him is still alive in the middle of a famine. It's an incredible thought. Uh, And so we see Joseph there in front of the brothers accusing them of spies and yet at the same time enacting the next phase of the plan. And so he accuses them of being spies continuously and he says, the only way that I can know that you are not spies is if you bring that 11th son. Because you've said that you're all 10 brothers, but why, why was one not brought? Bring them all is the accusation, and I'm going to keep one hostage until you do just that. And so they are sent off then with the grain, returning back to Canaan. And the first night as they camp, they open the grain to feed themselves and their their mules to actually get back to Canaan. Uh, And they discover in the top of the sack a little bag of silver coins. Heart stopping moment. I guess they thought immediately at that moment, what do we do? We're in a no-win. If we go back, we're going to be, it's going to be, we are slaves, isn't it? Of course, it's proven. And yet, we've got food to take back to our father. They continue, they go back. The food lasts a while. And then Jacob sends them back again. But we can't go back without Benjamin. Now, taking us back to the very beginning of the whole of this story, the way it works out, Jacob loved his wife, Sarah, Rebecca, desperately. He had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, with her. One is dead, as far as he's concerned, and Benjamin is the desperately loved son who we will not send. I've given you everything. Reuben steps up and he says, I'll tell you what, I'll take custody, I'll protect, and if he doesn't return, you can kill my sons. That's not a really brave thing to do, is it? It's kind of an unwise thing. And then steps up Judah. He says, I tell you what, I will be the custodian. I will be the carer. If I do not return with your son, you can hold me accountable. I will stand in the way of any harm. I will take the responsibility. And so they go back. They take gifts. They take gifts to present to Jacob as a way, I guess, of trying to appease the situation that every one of the sacks has had the money that they took to pay for the grain in the first place tucked into the top. They take Benjamin with them. There's a fascinating little section 
the end of chapter 43, where they're being fed, and Benjamin receives five times the amount of food that the other brothers uh, have received. The outcome of that is what? They just enjoy a great feast. That might seem the normal thing, but we're going to come back to that in a few minutes because it's critical to the story. They return. Everything seems to have gone well. They've brought the silver coins back and they've brought the same amount again and they've presented the silver coins. And then they return and they're on the way. They're returning back to Canaan. And they open the top of the sack. And there, in the top of Benjamin's sack, is a silver goblet belonging to Joseph. They are taken almost immediately back to Egypt. They are arrested. They are accused. They're taken back. The brothers are searched. Benjamin is discovered as being, as far as, they are cons- as far as the Egyptian authorities portray it, and as far as Joseph portrays it, Benjamin is the guilty one, the youngest. The one, I, I just for a moment, just imagine the, the whole mix of emotions that are going on. What must it have been like for Benjamin to go with the older brothers on that trip to Egypt, having not been the first time? No harm will come to you. And then they discover the silver cup in his sack. And he is the one who's accused. And he has done nothing. He has not taken the cup. And yet he is the one who is accused. Our story closes with Judah stepping up and offering himself as an acceptable substitute for Benjamin. Imprison Benjamin rather than me. That's basically the way these three chapters go. It's a big section. But the reality is, and the reason that we're compressing it, is because this is the key to the story. Joseph has already enacted one plan of salvation. The wisdom of God working through Joseph has enacted a plan of salvation which has saved Egypt. Egypt would have been a wasted nation. They would have had it. It was the wisdom of collecting the grain over the seven years. It was the foresight and the prophecy that came through Joseph that enacted that mission of of economic planning which achieved the salvation of Egypt. That's massive, isn't it? Have you ever been to the British Museum and seen some of the amazing things that display the grandeur and the majesty of Egypt? There's a whole load of debate about this little story. Is this just fiction? Is this just some... Hebrew desire to create some sort of narrative of their history. A lot of Egyptologists think it is. There's a guy called David Roll, an Egyptologist who is not a Christian, who believes that the key is changing slightly the order of the Pharaoh's birth so that two Pharaohs actually rule Egypt together. When that happens, according to David Roll, 
all of the Egypt uh, timeline shifts. And Joseph and Jericho and all of those other things subsequent to the period of time of Joseph and the Israelites in Egypt fall into place. And the storyline of Egypt and the Bible sits perfectly. That's fascinating. But what's even more fascinating to me is that I would suggest that if this didn't happen, we probably wouldn't know half of the story of Egypt because the nation would never have survived. There would have been famine that would have wiped out that land. Why didn't that happen? According to the Bible, because the wisdom of God intervened on an international scale at the highest level and changed the path of history. And that is, again, a way of thinking, a way of understanding the events of this world which the Bible brings to us, which encourages us in every situation to say there is something else which is going on. There is another story which is going on. There is something else working in this world. There is a greater plan. And for Joseph, over this next three chapters and beyond, there is a plan of having secured the salvation of Egypt. Now he is about securing the salvation of his brothers and Israel. That is what's at stake now. Why is that at stake? Because as far as the Bible is concerned, God has made a promise. And He's made a promise to Abraham, which continued to Isaac and to Jacob, to Israel, to say, from you will come a great, countless nation that will be blessed. Well, right at the moment, that great nation is a group of families who are starving to death in Canaan. And they need saving. And so Joseph works out the next stage. One of the key things that we see, in fact, the whole of the story rests on one of the phrases that we read in verse uh, 8 of chapter 42. It says this, Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Everything rests on that, doesn't it? They've got to recognize, they've got to fail to recognize him And he's got to recognize them from the very beginning for everything else to work out. And that's really a a kind of a bigger picture, a bigger understanding of how the brothers respond to this situation compared to Joseph. Joseph is making various steps. What does he do? He says, right, give them the grain and put their money back in them, into the sacks. And then later he says, put the goblet into the sack of Benjamin. And then he immediately sends his, uh, his servants on to arrest them and to bring them back. And there are a series of very discreet steps which are worked out from the visibility of Joseph. And yet underneath, the brothers are being knocked from pillar to post, aren't they? They are just being blown all over the place. They haven't got a clue what is going on. 
They are just, what is happening? We turn up, we've got the money, we've got the cup, we've not paid for it, but we've got the grain, and then we're being accused of being spies, and it all depends on a bigger vision and a bigger visibility which is hidden from the brothers. On a greater level, that is how faith works. The brothers respond very interestingly. At one point, when they see the money in the sacks, what's their response? For the first time, they mention God. And that's interesting, isn't it? And they say, God has brought this on us because of our brother. This is God's retribution on us. It's God's getting us because we've been bad. And if you're down at the bottom, if you're in the dust, if you're starving, if you don't know what's going on, then you probably might think that, mightn't you? It's God who's getting us because of our brother. Years ago, some of you won't be able to remember this band called Travis. Travis brought out a song, Why Does It Always Rain On Me? Is it because I lied when I was 17? It is exactly that mindset. The idea that everything happens because of things back there that I've done. God is judging me. God is is taking me to account. And then we read this and we see, do you know what? Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. You're seeing it as though God is judging you. And yet the reality is God is saving you. How often is life like that? How often do we hit issues in our lives where we honestly don't know what the response is? Is it because God is judging me? Is it because I'm in a situation which I deserve to get this punishment? Is God even really there anymore? Does God love me? Is He doing what He promised to do to care for me? Because right now, it doesn't look like it. That is a key issue, isn't it? You might not be a believer in Jesus. You might not have taken that step of putting your faith in Jesus so that you believe and you trust that His hand is upon you every step of the way, and that everything that works out in life in some way is being shaped in a way which is for your good and His glory. You might not be there. And yet the Bible says that's the kind of God who you have on your side as a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet you look at your Christian friends and you might say, look at that going on in their life. Does God love them? Can I believe and trust in that God? This story says the way that we can is by realizing that there are always two perspectives. There is the perspective from underneath, which is chaotic, which is questionable, which we don't know what is happening, and then there is this bigger perspective, which just momentarily is represented for us by Joseph, who has a greater perspective going on, and is working out something step by step, which looks terrible, 
but it's to secure the salvation of his brothers. There's something else going on, isn't there? What are the brothers really like now? One of the fascinating things that we saw at the early part of this story is the way that Judah is portrayed just before Potiphar, uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Judah is portrayed as just a horrible man. You say, why is that there? In a sense, that's there for this. That is there for this next three chapters. Because what emerges over this period of time is that in the intervening years, while Joseph has been absent, there has been a God relationship change in the life of that family. What we saw before was what? A dysfunctional family. And what we see now is a functional family. We haven't got time to go through all of the little steps, but we can look at three ways in which we see reconciliation being worked out. Firstly, we see Judah becoming the guardian. It's great having a big brother, if you've got a big brother. It's great having a big brother in the schoolyard, isn't it? Judah's way more than that. Send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame for you all my life. That's Judah stepping up and he's saying, I'll be the guardian. There's another incident which we mentioned earlier. It seems a kind of throwaway comment. Benjamin gets five times the provision of food at the banquet that Joseph lays on. They are starving men and and Joseph lays on a banquet for them. Ten of them get a good provision and Benjamin gets this. He gets the massive, he gets the big boy breakfast uh, on that day. He just gets the plate piled and they enjoy it together what would have happened before if it had been joseph ah favoritism to this youngster that we hate and what do we see now we see a joyful family eating together a functional family eating together where the older brother has said i'll stand up and i'll take the pain for the protection of the younger one. And if he gets more, I'm not going to go and sulk in the corner. I will be joyful because we are together. What a transformation has gone on in this family. And then we see that he becomes the substitute. The longest discourse in the whole of these three chapters is the point where Joseph accuses Benjamin of being a spy. And Judah, once again, he stands up. Imagine what that was like. You're a nothing in the court of Egypt and your younger brother has been accused of being a spy because he's got a cup in his pocket that was belonging to the second highest ranking person whose house you have been in 
whose table you have ate at. And Judah stands up and he says, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father. And there is a younger son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, Bring him down to me. I can see so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. For if he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servant, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. We cannot go down without our younger brother. And it goes on and on and then he says, so now. If the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy is not there, he will die. Your servant will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame. Now then, please, let your servant remain in place of the boy. He becomes the substitute for his younger brother. In a sense, in human terms, he becomes the substitute for his guilty younger brother. We know how it works out, how it worked out. We know how the silver cup ended up in there. But the court would say he's guilty. And yet Judah says, I will stand in the place. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing series of steps which Joseph enacts meticulously with great foresight with every word carefully measured, with every decision carefully worked out, so that he would achieve this. He would achieve 11 sons bowing down to him. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because that's what God said right at the very beginning. Is that what it's all about? Joseph becoming the one who's proved to be right? Well, we'll see next week if that's all it proves to be. But for now, if we have a Bible radar attuned, it should have been just sounding off massive alarms, shouldn't it? What kind of picture does this portray for us? What kind of Judah is this Judah? He's a Judah who becomes a savior. He's a Judah who becomes a substitute. He's a Judah who enacts what it means to stand in the place of the humanly speaking guilty one 
and take the accountability and take the blame and pay the price so that the one might go free. That's great, isn't it? That's just fantastic. And yet what we see in this glorious, amazing, incredible thread of gold that runs through the Bible, a preparation for a better Judah. A greater Judah. One who becomes the substitute, not simply for those who appear to be guilty, but for those who are guilty. The one who stands in the place, the one who effectively says to his father, Father, I will be held accountable. Count me as being responsible for the guilt. Slay me. And the Father and the Son step into the greatest plan of salvation. This tiny little plan of salvation which Joseph is working out across the empire of Egypt for the preparation of the whole of the rest of the Old Testament so that Jesus would be born in Jerusalem is only a little step which tells us there is a greater Judah who actually does bear the price. And who is recognized, finally, as that Judah. Right at the back end of the Bible, we read in Revelation, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. (laughs) John's in this broken state. And the elder says, do not weep. It's not bad. (laughs) There's martyrs everywhere. There's blood being shed. There's horror There's all sorts of terrible things. And he says, do not weep. Look, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Jesus, he's triumphed. He's stood in the place. He's ended up in the dungeon. He's paid the price. He's been counted as accountable. He's borne the guilt. He's freed the younger brother and the younger sisters who say, I'm part of your family. I trust in you. I don't always understand how this plan of salvation is being worked out, but you know what? I trust in you. With all of this going on in the world, with all of this going on in life, I trust in you because you are the lion of the tribe of Judah and you have triumphed. It's great news, isn't it? We're going to see next week as we conclude the story of Joseph how it finally becomes a great reconciled family 